don't think you have to have it all planned out. So mellow out a little bit. Don't worry at all about what other people think. They're not thinking about you. And the most important thing that you can do is just try to make a contribution. And being alert to opportunity along the way, recognizing that, as you said earlier, that the path is not a path, it's the opposite of a line. It's a messy, three-dimensional squiggle. The technique that I use for younger people who like your viewers who say, okay, you know, it's like, how did you get to be doing, you know, you know I want to come up with my plan. I want to come up with this carefully constructed way of moving from point A to point B to point C to arrive at a particular destination. And my, what I say to them is, okay, guys, hold on, hold on. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find somebody in their forties or fifties who is doing something that is cool, that you like, that you admire, that makes a contribution. And then ask that person this question. How did, exactly the question that you asked me, Tyler. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? And I guarantee you that 99 times out of 100, the most interesting, impactful people will answer that question like this. It's a long story because it is the opposite of a line, whatever that is. So somehow through it all navigated this road seeing just you know far enough in front of you started writing books you, i know you wrote a few books before this i was fascinated by your free agent workbook um but you know at motiversity motivation is a big topic for us you wrote the foundational book on motivation what can you tell us some of the big findings around motivation i'll give you the the, the big finding that book drive which is about 10 years old now looks at a body of social science on motivation, particularly motivation um, to, on the job and in school. And, and it says a lot of different things. It, what it, but it basically says is that motivation is more complex than we typically realize, that human beings have a mix of motivations, that we have, a, we have biological motivations, that is we eat when we're hungry, we drink when we're thirsty, we have sex to satisfy those desires. That's not all who we are. We have a reward and punishment drive. We respond sometimes very predictably to rewards and punishments in our environment. But that's not, also, that's, that's not the limit of human motivation. We also do things because we like them, because it's interesting, because they're meaningful to us, because it's the right thing to do. And that's also a big motivation. So what I'm trying to do is, is show people, based on science, this three-dimensional view of human motivation. Now, in terms of the particular finding from the science, there's one that is just if, if your viewers understand this, they're way ahead of the game, and it's this. There's a certain kind of motivator that we use in organizations, in schools, in many realms of our life. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I like to call it an if-then reward. If-then. If you do this, then you get that. 50 years of science tells us that if-then rewards are great for simple tasks with short time horizons. We love rewards, they get us to focus, but if-then rewards are less great for complex tasks with longer time horizons. And if you look at the workplace, the careers that everybody's planning for, we're doing less of this routine algorithmic work and more of the complex creative work, which means that we need organizations that actually use the science of motivation to build structures so that people can do their best work. It's fascinating. So just because it works for kind of small tasks or simple tasks, we then shift that style of motivation into the complex, heavy, difficult tasks. 
And that's where we get lost. Precisely. And here's the thing. It's like, that's understandable. There's not any bad, there's not any animus behind this. It just so happened that in the world of work for a long time, a lot of what people did on the job was simple, routine, and short term. Turn the same screw the same way over and over again. And so here's, if we want to respect the science, the science tells us that if then rewards are not bad for that. So any of you, you want somebody to stuff a lot of envelopes, pay them per envelope and give them a bonus for every hundred. You'll get a lot more envelopes stuffed. But most of us are not doing envelope stuffing. We're doing things that require more judgment, discernment, creativity, conceptual thinking. And for that, we need a very different motivational regime. Now I'm going to jump around here a little bit, Dan, because you know I'm just kind of shifting from big monumental book to monumental book. When you wrote when I wasn't, you know, it's one of those things that it, it, it's it's in all of our life timing, but it was almost like I'd never seen somebody break it down before and okay. talk about the relevance of it. And so when you when you came up with that book, it really felt like there was something here that was like just below the surface. And as soon as you exposed it, so many things started to make sense. What were some of your big takeaways with timing? Well, I mean, among the big things is that timing is much more of a science than an art. Uh, that when we make our timing decisions, both in terms of wow. what we do in a given day, but also sort of how we navigate anything temporal, we, we tend to make those decisions based on intuition and guesswork, when in fact there is this rich body of science out there that gives us guidance. Um, and the, the, the challenge for this science is that it's not one science, it's 25 sciences, that it's spread across all these different domains. And so for that book, that was a very hard book to research because I, I had to look across from uh, social psychology to economics to anthropology to endocrinology to molecular biology to try to make sense of this. But what I found is that we can make systematically smarter, more strategic choices about things like when we do things in a given day. Um, uh, we know how beginnings affect us. We know how midpoints affect us. We know how endings affect us. We know how groups uh, uh, synchronize in time. And and so for that one, what I was trying to do is, in some ways, figure it out for myself. There are all of these how-to books out there. I wanted to write a when-to book. So I'm imagining you, you, it would be tough to write a book on regret without going through your own life. Sure. Any Any regrets you'd care to share? Anything that feels like, you know, that stands out? Yeah, all kinds of regrets. Uh, you know, I, I have regrets earlier in my life about not being a kind enough person, not bullying people, but actually being in situations where there was someone on the periphery or someone being left out and noticing that and not doing anything. That that I, that, that really bugs me. Uh, like many people, um, there were a lot of people who talked about regrets, about regret of not going to funerals. And there's one funeral that I'm thinking of, uh, a guy who I worked with. I wasn't very, I wasn't like a close friend, but... I, I didn't go to his funeral because I was like really busy that day and I still regret that. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a smaller one. Um, I'm a, you know, you, you, for the folks who are interested in careers, which is a lot of your audience I know, one of my favorite techniques is what Tina Selig at Stanford University calls a failure resume. Like I've made a failure resume, a list of all of my setbacks and mistakes and blunders. And you Have you actually done it? Hell yeah. You list <laughs> list all those and then you um, think about like what did you learn from that and then how can you apply it going forward and so 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 again you know for me you know you can't spend a few years on a topic 
yeah. without it changing you, particularly a topic with such emotional freight as regret. What would be your, your reason for someone just to pick up the book? Like, why, why would I want to walk into a bookstore, open up Amazon and, and order this book? Because I think it's going to allow you to understand our mo- your most misunderstood emotion. You're, I think you're going to see regret in a new light and not be scared of it, but instead realize that regret gives you the clues to lead a life of success and meaning and contribution. So take yourself back to being 20 years old, Dan. What advice would you give yourself? I know I, I, I won't ask how many years that's that's rewinding the clock for me. It's getting it's getting quite far back there. But yeah, it's six what advice me. would you give yourself? Um, <laughs> what advice would I give myself? Um, well, here's the thing. It's an interesting question because I think twenty year old me would not have listened to any advice because twenty year old mm-hmm. me thought he had it all figured out. But if mm-hmm. I could somehow penetrate that thick skull, um, I would say to him, "We think, okay, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do and then do it." But what I found in my own life, and I think the lives of others, is that that sequence is off, that actually the way to figure out what you want to do is to do stuff. So the doing actually leads to the figuring out rather than the other way around. Flip it. Fascinating. So that's the advice you'd give yourself. What was the best advice somebody ever gave you? Uh, as a writer, I think the best advice that anybody gave me was an editor who once said, what is the, you know, I was confused about something and I, I, I turned in a draft of a piece that was crap. And, and he said, um, what's the promise you're making to the reader? And so, so whatever reason, at that point in my life, I was like, whoa. Uh, and I yeah, think about yeah. that a lot. So when I think about when I'm writing something, it's like, what's, okay, what's the promise or, or making anything? What's the promise I'm making to people? Because I want to know, I want to be clear about that promise and I want to deliver on that promise. How about the worst advice? <laughs> um, you have to go to law school because you need something to fall back on. Uh, I'm sure that it hits a lot of people in the gut hearing that. What's the legacy you hope to leave behind, Dan? Oh, you know, uh, I mean, at, at some level is that, I, you know, I want to uh, have people in my life who I love and who love me. That's the most important thing, truly. I'm at a real, I don't know if I would have said that, Tyler, 25 years ago, but it seems clear as a freaking bell right now. Um, and the other thing in terms of the work is that, you know, I want people to say, hey, I read that dude's book and you know what? I saw the world a little differently and I did one thing a little differently that made my life better. That's, that's enough for me. I, I feel like actually just on that point about, you know, the people that I hope to love me, love me. Uh, I feel like I heard Warren Buffett talk about that at some point, you know, Not somebody really. that ex- externally, you know, checks all the boxes of success. Yeah. just said like at the end of the day this, i mean really what i'm aiming at now is that the people i hope that love me still do and uh just yeah, like and also, really- i mean you have, you have people in your life who love you and whom you love i mean i think that comes out very clearly in these connection regrets that's ultimately yeah. what they're about huh. um when people say if only i'd reached out they they what they care about is that sense of connection and affinity with another human being uh which is a form of love it's not in in love in a broader sense it's not love only in the romantic sense it's love in the in the love that we have for our parents and our kids and our siblings and our relatives but also the love we have for our friends and even for our colleagues